Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. The reading is from Luke chapter 22, 14 to 30, the Last Supper. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying this, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. You are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those that have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging twelve tribes of Israel. Second reading is from Revelations chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. 
he seized the dragon, that ancient snake, which is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their hands or their foreheads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in this first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. One day, there will be no opposition to God's rule. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, there will be no person who does not sing Alleluia to the King of Kings. One day, all suffering and evil and tears will be wiped away. One day, what is now partial will be complete. God's kingdom will have come and filled the world. Today, many contest Christ's rule. But one day, God's people will no longer experience any opposition. As Paul says, Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And God put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who is filling all in all. Or Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. In this series of sermons in chapel, we learnt in the first one that God has the victory over all that oppose him through the ministry of Christ. And in the second sermon, God invites us to enter the kingdom through the merits of Christ. Last week, we learned that God sets a vision for us of the way the world might yet be as believers love and forgive. In all this, we've learned that one day, 
the father will receive the kingdom from his son and give back the kingdom to his son as his bride, that we might live with him face to face forever. In this world, God's rule is contested, but one day there will no longer be any contest. His rule will not be hidden. So we get this picture in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, of the ideal reign of God. But notice, it's the ideal reign of God before the end of the world. It's the ideal reign of God in time and space. Christians have, particularly Protestant Christians, have debated endlessly what these verses mean. Does Christ return before the thousand years? Does Christ return after the thousand years? Or is the thousand years picture language for Christ's rule through the church between his first and second coming? And my job this morning is not to give my opinion. Because actually I think there's something that all those groups of Christians have in common in interpreting Revelation 20. There are deeper lessons here than the timing. Whatever position you take, whether you're premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, the deeper lesson is that God's kingdom takes up space in this world. And even if the kingdom comes later or if the kingdom's now, if the millennium's later, if the millennium's now, part of what this chapter or these verses at least are doing for us is explaining that God's kingdom can be set up in this world and we have a job to do. It's interesting, isn't it, at the beginning of Revelation 20, it's not Christ or God who comes down. It's an, a nameless angel. This is not a big fight, putting Satan away. This nameless angel comes down, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, and almost effortlessly he sees the dragon, that ancient snake who's a devil of Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The angel comes down to this world, and binds Satan. This is a story about this world, not the next. And in seizing that dragon and binding him, throwing him into the abyss, uh, we learn in verse 3 that uh, the evil one is kept from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. This is not just on this earth, but this is a thousand years where God's rule brings peace. God's rule brings prosperity. God's rule is, in a sense, perfected. God brings order in this world. We spend lots of time speaking about uh, the timing 
we need to spend a little more time thinking about the space, how God does it in three dimensions. Even in Luke 22, when Jesus is at the Last Supper, instituting the Lord's Supper, he says that he will again eat and drink with them. That's a time and space thing, isn't it? It's just that they have to wait for that moment to arrive. This earth matters to God. It should matter to us. According to Revelation 20, the physical doesn't get in the way of a relationship with God. It's not like this physical world is a place that we have to reject to know God. No, his rule and reign is practiced through this physical reality. You might have met uh, Joseph from Uganda in the last couple of months, uh, a visiting doctoral student at Ridley. He's written recently for the Langham Partnership newsletter and in that he speaks of how Gnosticism is on the rise in Uganda. Now, in early church history classes, you might think that this is a foreign and very kind of ancient heresy. But actually, there are still lots of Christians in our world who believe that God does not want to work through the physical, that the physical gets in the way of our relationship. No, the physical is the sphere through which God blesses us. The least that this passage on the millennium does is speak about God wanting to work in time and space. I had a conversation at the beginning of the year with some friends who are planting churches in Connecticut. This was the debate they were having. If they were going to build or buy a building, how beautiful should it be? Some of them said, of course we want to have a building that's beautiful, that's attractive, that's winsome, that people want to come in. And others were saying, no, we believe in the kingdom. It only has to be practical. It was very interesting language. Now, I don't mind if you have an ugly church building, right? That's your prerogative. I prefer beautiful things, but that's okay. But to add the word the kingdom means that it has to be ugly. The kingdom means that it must be merely practical, I think is not a way that honours, well, the scriptures or this passage for that matter. They were saying that the kingdom impacts things spiritually but the kingdom doesn't have to impact things physically. I don't think you should use the language of kingdom for ugliness or invisibility. God uses, prizes, blesses physical reality. But the other interesting thing about Revelation 20 is not just saying that God wants to rule in this perfect way in time and space. It also speaks of the people who are going to help him. These rulers who are also priests. Revelation 20 speaks of our responsibilities 
in that reign of peace and prosperity. In Luke 22, we heard that just as the Father conferred a kingdom on Christ, so he confers a kingdom on those who followed him, the church. And this passage has plenty of references to ruling and thrones. We might even sit on some. 20 verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who were given authority to judge. Or a little bit further down, uh, 2011, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. There's lots of judging going on in these verses and particularly those who have suffered for Christ have a responsibility in reigning with him. You read that in verse 4. I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They hadn't worshipped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Whenever the millennium is, whether we're in the middle of it, it's yet to come, whenever Christ returns relative to the millennium, this passage makes clear that part of the responsibility is that Christians administer that kingdom with Christ. We've entered the kingdom, we belong to the kingdom, we have responsibilities in the kingdom. God gives us authority and agency amongst his people to be kingly priests royal priesthood, priests who reign. Now, it's a a weird idea, even when Jesus says in Luke 22 that uh, those 12 disciples will have responsibility over the 12 tribes of Israel. We're trying to work out what it means, and it's very hard to imagine uh, the implications. But if we step back a little and recognise that even in the Garden of Eden, God made human beings to represent him and exercise authority in this world on his behalf. Perhaps then we understand that these descriptions of particularly those who suffered having responsibility is just taking up that big Bible theme that human beings are meant to exercise authority on God's behalf on his behalf as king and, as it were, being mediators with the world around him. For we are a kingly priesthood. But interestingly, in in Revelation 20, our authority or the authority of those who judge rule with Christ are doing it in the millennium, in this thousand-year period of peace and prosperity when there will be no opposition to the Lord's rule. Evil has been banished. Their authority with Christ is not to run countries, but to represent his plans, his purposes, his design. Our authority as a royal priesthood is to declare his praises and to live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they see our good deeds, When they see our good deeds, they glorify God. 
Something that all of us can agree on, no matter what your millennial position, is that Revelation 20 speaks about God ruling in this world before the end comes and God using us in this world with authority before the end comes. This a thousand years is a picture of the ideal state while we wait. So the function of Revelation 20 is to motivate us, motivate us to persevere. The millennium speaks about what happens in the world before the end of the world when the new heavens and the new earth descend. So what do we learn? God rules through us within history as a royal priesthood. But because his rule is less about uh, exercising power and dominating people, our rule is more about offering a sacrificial witness. This isn't saying we're going to bang heads together and run governments and countries. This picture is of Christians who've suffered serving those around them. It's actually helping us to be modest about the role we play in world history. Effectively, it's asking us to be public Christians who know how to suffer. The world matters to God, but for most of us, bearing witness to Christ, perhaps through suffering service, might be the best we can imagine. These were the martyrs ruling after all. But perhaps also a suffering witness in this world, a suffering amidst opposition, brings great glory to God. You might remember the Bali Nine. Andrew Chan was one of those who was convicted for drug smuggling. He considered his former life a waste of time and having been of no benefit to anyone. So it was in jail in the Kovacan prison in Bali that he read the Bible and realised that he could be a blessing to others. And despite his incarceration, he interpreted his conversion as being free from the inside out. And he's now known for not only for his conversion, but being such a calming and life-affirming presence amongst the other prisoners that even the prison governor appealed for a last-minute reprieve before he was executed. People have noted how calm and positive he was and even married on the eve of his execution. One pastor who travelled with him in those four years said on the ABC, he's got a peace within his own heart. His hope, whether he lives or whether he dies, is that the fruit he's been able to produce will be a blessing to others. I think he beautifully pictures 
something of what Revelation 20 asks of all of us. Suffering and sacrifice has redemptive power. One of the most moving moments in the movie, The Passion of Christ, is where Jesus, on his way to being crucified, carrying his cross, falls down. And when asked, he says, I am making all things new. At the moment when he looked least like he had had any power, at that very moment, he was explaining something of God's purposes for the world. These are the words that Revelation 21 ends with. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For at that moment, the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let me pray. Oh, please, Heavenly Father, uh, help us to know what it means to wait Please help us to know what it means to serve you, to suffer for you as we serve the world around us. Please motivate us to continue in this until our life's end. For Christ's sake. Amen. Please stand so we can sing about the kingdom.